we are now going to begin going through the Gospel of John. So you can, you can turn there. We are going to do more of a, an introduction this morning. So we won't necessarily be working through the text. We'll, we'll begin that next time. We'll look at bits and pieces. But just as a, a recap of what we looked at in Colossians, because again, there, there's a reason why I wanted to go to the Gospel of John after doing Colossians. Because in Colossians, we saw the Apostle Paul emphasize the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ in all things. He pointed to Christ as God the Son, the preeminent one, through whom we have been forgiven and reconciled to God, in whom we have eternal life and the hope of glory, and from whom we receive endless grace and wisdom and empowerment for life and godliness so that we might honor him with our lives and be conformed to his image. That's what we looked at. That's what Paul was, was teaching. And now, turning to the Gospel of John, we will behold our Lord up close. And we'll be guided through his righteous life and ministry upon this earth 2,000 years ago. And along the way, we'll take the heart his amazing words and deeds that showed him to be none other than the Son of God. And as I said before, we dive into the, the actual text and the opening verses and start working our way through the gospel, we're first going to cover some preliminary matters that will give us a better view and understanding of the book as a whole. Sound like a good plan? First, this is an easy one, who wrote John's gospel? John, good. Don't you like easy tests like that? So obviously the answer most of you would be expecting and most of you give, which you're correct, is the Apostle John, right? So there's actually a number of Johns in Scripture. But it's the Apostle John who wrote this fourth and, yes, final gospel. How do we know that? How do we know that? There's no direct mention in this gospel that the Apostle John is the author. So again, you might actually, you know, if you start looking into things and you, you might take notice of that, that, oh, it doesn't actually, it's not like a letter where there's a greeting and he says, hi, Apostle John, I'm writing my gospel, here it is. And you'll also see, maybe in some commentaries or articles, that people have different views on who they believe wrote it. But I would say we know that the Apostle John wrote it, even though it is not mentioned in this gospel explicitly that the Apostle John is the author. Because at the very end of the gospel, the author does identify himself. He does. He identifies himself as being the disciple whom Jesus loved. So we know that the one who wrote this identifies himself as the one mentioned in the gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is how one of Jesus' disciples is referred to throughout the narrative. We know that this anonymous disciple was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus because he's mentioned as being present at the Last Supper. And according to the other three Gospels, only the 12 were present with Jesus at that time. In addition to that, 
this disciple whom Jesus loved, identified that way, this disciple is depicted as being very close to Jesus, which means that he was one of the three disciples who made up Jesus' inner circle. You know, he had the 12. And in the circle of the 12, there was an inner circle of three disciples. And according to the other three Gospels, these disciples were Peter and the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, James and John, the brothers, James and John. And since Peter is referred to by name throughout this fourth gospel, that leaves James and John as potentially being the disciple whom Jesus loved. And the fact that this disciple is also depicted as being very close not only to Jesus, but also very close to Peter, indicates that it is indeed John then. Since according to references in Luke and Acts and Galatians, Peter and John were very closely associated. And aside from that, we also know that John's brother, according to history, John's brother, James, the history that we have in the book of Acts, James was martyred too early for him to have been the author of this gospel. He was actually martyred very early on in the first century. So he wouldn't have been the one who authored this gospel. So that leaves John. That's what we know. That's how you know that the apostle John wrote this gospel Now, another question we want to ask is this, where and when did the Apostle John write his gospel account? Where and when did he write it? Well, according to the early church father Irenaeus, a man named Irenaeus, who lived during the second century and was a disciple of a man named Polycarp, who himself was a disciple, had been a disciple of the Apostle John. So think about that, Irenaeus was discipled by Polycarp, who himself was discipled by the Apostle John. According to Irenaeus, this gospel was written by John the Apostle while he resided and ministered in Ephesus in the province of Asia, which was not until the later part of the first century. And we can reasonably estimate that he wrote this gospel sometime between 80 and 90 AD, so towards the end of the first century. The other three gospels... Matthew, Mark, and Luke had been circulating then for decades by the time that John wrote this one. And he no doubt would have been familiar with them. They'd been around for decades. These first three Gospels are often referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. Have you heard that term? Synoptic Gospels. That's what, it, that's what it's referring to. It's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're called that because of their similarity to one another in their structure and in their content. You know, they're not, they're not copies. They're not duplicates. They are unique in their own right, distinct from one another, but they're very similar. So they're referred to as the synoptic gospels. John's gospel, on the other hand, is entirely, almost entirely unique. Outside of Jesus' miracle of feeding the 5,000, his anointing, and the passion narrative. It is distinct. John's gospel is distinct from the gospels and what it relates to us concerning the life and ministry of Christ. That's the only thing it relates that the others do. The rest of the material in John's gospel is unique, and we don't find it in the other gospels. This is because John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
Well, he chose to include accounts from Jesus' life and ministry that he thought would be the most relevant to the purpose for which he wrote and the most impactful to the specific audience he had in mind. Now, again, you think the disciples were with Jesus for three years. There'd be much for them to write and much to choose from when they decide to write their gospel accounts Again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so John was writing his much later in the first century, decades after the other ones, and he had a specific purpose he wanted to achieve in writing it. And he also had a particular audience in mind. And so he wanted to pick certain words and deeds of Christ to put in his gospel, and it happened to be very unique from the other ones. And the fact that the other ones have been circulating for decades and people were probably maybe familiar with those accounts, John wanted to give them maybe some interesting insights or details that they had not already received. So who was John's intended audience, and what was his purpose in writing his gospel? Did you ever think about that? That when you, re- when you look at any of the four gospels, that they were actually written with a specific purpose in mind, with a specific audience in mind? You know, usually we, we open them up and we just think, this is to the whole world, to everybody, yes, including me. Well, that's true. We, we have access to them. And we can benefit from them, but they were written at a certain time with a specific purpose to a specific audience in mind. That shaped their story. That shaped or determined what they put in there and how they wrote their gospel. So who was John's intended audience? Again, the immediate audience he was writing to. We still benefit, right? So again, Paul, immediate audience in Colossians, what was the Christians at Colossae? But it doesn't mean that nobody else is supposed to read it or or benefit from it. We all still benefit from it indirectly, but we weren't the direct audience he had in mind when he wrote that letter. Same thing with John's gospel. Who was his audience? Well, John, actually, let's do his purpose first because his purpose he mentions specifically towards the end of his gospel. He actually states it. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. So the end of chapter 20, John writes this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what does that tell us? John's gospel is an evangelistic gospel. In other words, its intended purpose was to persuade unbelievers to become Christians. Now, you might think, isn't that every gospel? But again, think about this. The gospel writers wrote their gospel with a specific audience with a specific purpose. Some of them wrote actually to edify or strengthen the faith of Christians. Now, you could read those gospels and come to saving faith in Christ, but they were, that was their purpose, and others were written evangelistically to present to unbelievers so that they might believe that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. So we know that John's gospel is evangelistic based on that purpose statement right there. So he is targeting what? He's targeting unbelievers. He's not writing to Christians. I'm writing this just so you guys actually do believe that Jesus is the Christ. They already do. So he's writing to with unbelievers in mind. But it's not just any unbelievers that John had in mind. He specifically had Jewish unbelievers in mind. He wanted to reach those, in other words, who, who worshiped the God of Israel, but had yet to believe that the promised Messiah 
spoken of in the scriptures was Jesus. That's who he is writing to. Jewish unbelievers, writing to Jews, and also to Jewish proselytes, which would be Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, who were God-fearers, but all of these people had yet to embrace Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. So John's writing his gospel with this audience in mind. Now, John does not specifically say, we just saw the purpose statement, he didn't say, these things are written so that you Jews may believe, right? It's not explicit. So why do we believe that most likely he wrote with Jewish unbelievers in mind? Well, there are certain features in this, his narration that indicate that he had primarily had a Jewish audience in mind. Most notably are the many connections. As we read John's gospel, we'll see he makes many connections to the Old Testament through quotations and allusions, which indicates that he knew that his target audience was well acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures. And he wrote to them accordingly. He assumed their knowledge of all these references to the Old Testament. Matthew's gospel, then, if we're thinking about audience and purpose, well, Matthew's gospel was written primarily to strengthen the faith of Jewish Christians. The beginning of the church was Jewish Jews who came to believe the gospel, right? It started with Jews. So the early church had a lot of Jews, was predominantly Jews. That gradually changed and became predominantly Gentile over time. So Matthew's gospel, the earliest gospel written, he's seeking to strengthen the faith of Jewish Christians. Luke's gospel, written later, Luke and Mark come maybe a decade or two later after Matthew wrote his. Luke's gospel is written primarily to strengthen the faith of Gentile Christians. And if you actually, if somebody ever asks you a question, hey, who did Luke write his gospel to? You're like, like, people? I mean, if you actually look at the beginning of Luke, there's an answer. He, he specifically, now again, directly wrote it to one man named Theophilus. He was a Gentile believer. So when you read how Luke opens his gospel, he kind of reveals what he's trying to do. Essentially strengthen the faith of this Gentile believer and the ideas that, of course, this would be reproduced. And it's, it's to edify and strengthen the faith of Gentile believers. And then we have Mark's gospel which was written primarily to evangelize Gentiles, because unlike John, there's, there's not a whole lot of Old Testament reference, references and allusions just put in there and assumed. And a lot of things are actually explained more for a uh, Gentile or Roman audience, even using Roman time and stuff like that. So it seemed that he sought to evangelize Gentiles through his gospel. And John's then was written primarily to evangelize Jews and Jewish proselytes. Now, John wrote at least a decade after there was a major event in history in the first century. And John was writing after this major event. What was it? He was writing at least a decade after this major event, the major event being that the Romans had crushed a Jewish revolt. There was a Jewish rebellion and revolt, and the Romans... At the end of the day, they crushed that revolt in Israel, and they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, and that was in 70 AD. So you actually can read about this in history books. But a tragic and horrific uh, accounts of 
the decimation of the people in 70 AD. And John's writing after this event. And with the temple destroyed, what did that do? It put an end to the sacrificial system. It put an end to Jewish religion, at least the way it was practiced as they knew it. So on a national level, for the Jews, at the time John is writing, since 70 AD, and by the time he's writing, maybe a decade, maybe more later, for the Jews, he knows on a national level, there was a huge void they were seeking to fill with regard to their religious ritual and worship of God. John sought to reach them then with the good news concerning the person and work of Jesus and to show them that he is the Christ, their Messiah. And he is the one to whom their former temple and sacrificial system and priesthood and rituals had pointed to. John wanted his fellow Jews, as John was a Jew who embraced Jesus as the Messiah, he wanted his fellow Jews as well as God-fearing Gentiles to know that the man Jesus was and is the Son of God and that he is the only way to God. So he's writing at a time where there is a void spiritually for the people. Their temple is gone. And John is writing them to point them to Christ to say that all of that pointed to Christ. He has come. He is risen. He is the Son of God. Worship him. So, it's with this target audience and purpose in mind that John carefully composed his gospel and gave it a particular structure. So again, it wasn't just free form. Uh, this happened, then I guess this happened. I mean, there's a structure to the way John put this account together. Very carefully, very thoughtfully. And again, he's putting it together in such a way in his mind, under the inspiration of the Spirit, to persuade his readers that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that they might believe and have life in his name. Now, we're going to look at the structure now. We're going to kind of look at, do a bird's eye view of John's gospel. The first 18 verses of chapter 1 are the prologue. Anybody familiar with that? The prologue? Usually in, in when you read a novel or something, a lot of times the author might include a prologue to the actual story you're about to read. And in these first 18 verses, John has a prologue before he begins his narrative concerning the life and ministry of Christ. And the purpose of this is John is, in these 18 verses, in this prologue, he's setting the stage for the account that he is about to give concerning Christ. And what does he do in this prologue? How does, he sets this, how does he set the stage? Well, first, he presents Jesus as God, the eternal Son who came from the Father's side, full of grace and truth, into the world which he made. John just puts it all up there right up front. This is what you're about to see. This is what you're about to, uh, to read, the life of this one. And I'm telling you, he is God. The world was made through him, and he came into the world. Also in this prologue, John presents the two categories into which the people in his narrative fall. The, one, the story we're about to read, we're going to basically see two categories of people, and they are those who receive Jesus as the divine Christ and believe in his name, and those who do not. John explains in his prologue that those who believe are recipients of God's grace and are given the right to become children of God. 
However, those who do not believe remain in darkness. They remain separated from God. And all of this in this prologue prepares the readers of John's gospel for the narrative that follows. And at the end of this, the end of this narrative that they're about to read, they too will be called upon to respond. And we just read that, summons to respond, why the gospel is written, written and why they're, what John is leading them to. So then we go to the main part of John's gospel, which is the actual narrative, which starts in chapter 1, verse 19, runs all the way through chapter 20. So the narrative begins in verse 19 of chapter 1, and it runs through the end of chapter 20, where John calls his readers to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And John essentially divides this narrative, this story, into two main parts. Part 1 can be referred to as the Book of Signs. And again, when you're doing outlines like this, people have maybe different names they give, different sections, or they might divide it up a different way. But this is, this is pretty well established and pretty clear when you're reading all of John's gospel. You'll see there's a, a clean break in the middle, but there's part one and part two. And part one can rightfully be referred to as the book of signs because in this first part, John recounts several of the miraculous signs of Jesus that he performed that proved him to be the Christ, the Son of God. It's the book of signs. And this part runs from verse 19 of chapter 1 all the way through the end of chapter 12. That is the book of signs, part 1 of the gospel narrative. Jesus performed many signs during the course of his ministry, but John, of course, had to be selective. He had to be selective. And he, and he chose to include the following seven in this portion of his narrative. The book of signs, right? He wants his readers to see the signs that affirm that Jesus indeed is the Christ, the Son of God. What did he include? He included seven signs. First, we read of Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding feast in chapter 2. Then in chapter 4, towards the end of that, we read of Jesus healing a royal official's son who was fatally ill. And then in chapter 5, we read of Jesus healing a man who had been disabled for 38 years. Then we read in chapter 6 of Jesus feeding a multitude of people with just five barley loaves and two fish. And by the way, this multitude included 5,000 men, not counting women and children, so it was likely around 20,000 people who ate off of five barley loaves and two fish, the miracle of feeding the multitude. And then, also in chapter 6, we read of Jesus walking on water in the midst of a stormy sea. And then in chapter 9, the sixth sign, we read of Jesus giving sight to a man who had been blind from birth. And then finally, the seventh sign, we read in chapter 11, towards the end of part one. We read of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. This sign, him raising Lazarus from the dead, was at the culmination of his public ministry, and it foreshadowed the greatest sign he would perform, which is written 
at the end of the second half of John's narrative, and that is what? Jesus raising himself from the dead. You see the, how all this builds. These signs are given to present who he really is, and that last sign he performed gave you a, a foreshadowing of, gives the reader and also the people who witnessed it a foreshadowing of what he was about to do, raise himself from the dead to affirm all that he has said, all that he had done. So the book of signs, just because it's called that, doesn't mean it only contains signs. It's not just an account of, look at all the awesome stuff Jesus did. He's the Son of God. It's not just his miraculous signs that John focuses on, but he also includes much of Christ's teaching, including several lengthy discourses. John wanted his readers to know not just the works of Jesus, but also the words of Jesus because his words are indeed truth and life. The signs we read of testify that he is the Son of God, and therefore we must certainly listen to what he says, should we not? And what does he say? Well, he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He says, perhaps you know this one, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, through the course of the events that are laid out in part one of John's narrative, in this first section, John shows that Jesus, despite his undeniable miraculous signs, which we just listed them, right? They were undeniable, they were miraculous, they were profound. Despite these signs, though, John shows throughout this first part that Jesus was faced with continued opposition and unbelief from his own people. Unbelief in the face of these signs. Chapter 12 closes in this way, and thus part one of John's gospel closes with it. The book of signs closes this way. It closes with a final indictment of the Jews' unbelief, which at the same time serves as a warning to who? To the one reading his gospel. It's a warning to the readers themselves to not harden their hearts in unbelief as this gospel presents the truth to them about Jesus. So this is how part one ends. And then we enter into part two, which begins in chapter 13. Part two of John's gospel narrative can be referred to as the book of glory. The book of glory. Throughout part one, John had explained that although the Jews who opposed Jesus wanted to arrest him and even to kill him, they could not. Because, why? His hour had not yet come. However, at the end of part one, we read Jesus saying, 
in chapter 12. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So then, right at the beginning of chapter 13, the book of glory, where part two begins, John writes the following. Jesus knew that his hour had come. Remember, he said to be glorified. What does it say here? His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. His departure out of this world to return to the Father would be preceded by his arrest, his crucifixion, his sacrificial death as the Lamb of God for the sins of his people, that is, all whom the Father had given him, and his resurrection. In all of this, he would be glorified. In his vicarious suffering and in his victorious resurrection, he was glorified. And so part two is the book of glory. And part two runs from chapter 13 through chapter 20. In chapters 13 through 17, we have the farewell discourse in which John gives the account of Jesus, his preparation of his disciples for his departure. So now he's telling them, I am going to depart and return to the Father. I'm going to leave. Right? And he's, he's, he's ministering to them. This is his private ministry now. In 13 through 17, chapters 13 through 17, this is his farewell discourse, preparing his disciples for his departure. And what does he do? Well, he, he charges them to keep his commandments, especially his chief commandment to them that they demonstrate what? Sacrificial love towards one another, as he did to them. He also forewarns them that the world will hate them and persecute them. So he's preparing them. He forewarns them that the world will hate them and persecute them. Yet, he comforts them in this way. He promises that he will, after he returns to the Father, he will send to them the Holy Spirit to guide them into all the truth and to empower them for ministry. And finally, in chapter 17, we see he prays for them. And he prays not only for them, but he also prays for those who will later, through their word, believe in him. It's called the high priestly prayer. So after the farewell discourse, chapters 13 through 17, we have the next section, the passion of Christ, the passion narrative, and that's chapters 18 through 20. And in these chapters, John gives the account of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. The climax of the story, the great climax of the narrative. So part two, the book of glory then, ends with Jesus, after his resurrection, appearing to his disciples and commissioning them to take the message of forgiveness of sins in his name to the world. And when we read this section, we read that one of the disciples, Thomas, I have that name too, we read that one of these disciples, Thomas, wasn't present with the others to see him risen initially. And he doubted their report when he heard it. Doubting Thomas, right? But then what does John tell us? John then tells us that Jesus appeared to them again with Thomas present this time. It's like, Thomas, come here. 
Okay. Remember, Thomas said, unless I see him and I'm able to basically touch his wounds. So Jesus appears to the disciples again. Thomas is there, who had doubted. But what happens? John writes that Thomas, just seeing for himself that Jesus was risen, he confessed this amazing confession. He confessed Jesus to be his Lord and his God. So doubting Thomas is also confessing Thomas, who believes Jesus is his Lord and his God, who straight up said, you are God. So we can redeem Thomas a little bit, our minds. And what happens after this? John concludes his narrative with these words. Jesus responds to Thomas, answers him, and says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Hint, hint to those reading the gospel, this gospel account. Hint, hint. You're reading it now. You haven't seen him, but you're reading of him. Blessed are you who have not seen and yet you believe. And then we have the purpose statement right after that. John sets it up, and now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book, reader. Talking to you now. But these are written so that you, reader, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see how well-crafted and thoughtful John was in composing this gospel to bring you to this point? Chapter 20, this right here, these verses are the end of John's narrative. But it is not the end of his gospel because he included an epilogue in chapter 21. So we had a prologue, we had the narrative, and now there's this final section he puts in at the end, an epilogue. And it's chapter 21. And in this epilogue, John gives additional details regarding one of Jesus' disciples in particular. Peter. Now we read, read some details in it, but it's basically it's focused on Peter. And what about Peter? Well, John writes in this epilogue that at a later time, Jesus appeared once again to his disciples, seven of them on this occasion. And Jesus, at this appearing, personally restored and commissioned Peter, which is an important follow-up for the reader who has read of Peter denying Jesus three times. So you read of his denial after he was arrested. Peter denied him three times. We, don't, we, we know that Peter was around and he saw Jesus risen and all that, but nothing's really said of that. It's unresolved. So John resolves that tension. Basically fills in that gap for the reader. What happens in chapter 21? He shows Peter was restored. The Lord himself came and restored him. And not just restored him, but commissioned him. This is John's affirmation of Peter, who, by the way, is the one through whose preaching thousands of Jews in Jerusalem believed the gospel and became a part of the church, and under whose teaching they were soundly instructed in the faith. Jesus told him, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Jesus told Peter to demonstrate his love for him by shepherding his people. That's his commission to him. Do you love me? Basically, shepherd my people. So Jesus calls him to demonstrate his love in that way, shepherd his people, and that he did. 
He called Peter to be fully devoted to him until the end, and he revealed that the end would be martyrdom. That's also what he told Peter, and that's what we read of in this epilogue. And this, of course, if we think about the time John wrote this gospel, right, this had already happened. Peter had already been executed. He had already been martyred. He was actually crucified like his Lord. And according to ancient historians and early church tradition, he actually requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified like his Lord in the same way. And upside down would have been even more of a torment uh, form of crucifixion. So John is writing at a time when this has already happened, but he's affirming Peter, and he's informing the reader that Peter indeed was restored and that he was faithful to the end. And this is perhaps the final point John is seeking to get across in this last chapter, in this epilogue. It may be that John is using the example of Peter to remind the readers that those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God are also called to be wholly committed to him and to follow him to the very end. So that's the call of discipleship, not just to believe, but to believe and follow after him and to remain faithful to him to the end. So finally, John concludes his epilogue and therefore his gospel with these last few sentences. At the end of chapter 21, he writes, this, now he had made reference to the disciple whom Jesus loved, and then he says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. And who has written these things? You see, so he identifies he is the disciple of Jesus' love who is writing these things. And we know that his testimony is true. I'm writing you the truth. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So there was so much more that John could have written. But what he did write was more than sufficient and is more than sufficient to make Jesus known to his readers so that they might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and follow after him. To those who believe, those who believe in Jesus, believe on him as the Son of God, they are given eternal life, John says, the hope of resurrection unto glory, the help of the Holy Spirit, freedom from sin, spiritual sight, abundant life, honor from the Father, answered prayer, joy, peace, union with the Father and the Son, sanctification by the truth, and, as we read in his prologue, the right to become, what? Children of God. Children of God. So there's John's gospel and an overview of it so we can see what we're about to get into. And we understand his purpose and, and the structure of how he laid everything out. So now, Next time, we're actually going to start looking at this verse by verse or section by section. So let's pray. We'll close in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you again for your word. It is, it is light for us. It is the truth. It is your revelation that we might know you, that we might know your son through whom we can be reconciled. We are reconciled to you and have life in his name. And we pray that, that you would continually move us to set our, our focus, our attention, our thoughts upon Jesus our Lord, the 
the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and that we might be faithful to follow after him and to not rely just on our own strength, but indeed to rely on the resource we've been given, that is, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And we pray that we might, as disciples of Christ, make Christ known. And that we'd be faithful, Lord, to be a part, instruments in your hand of bringing people to saving faith, those whom you have chosen before the foundation of the world. Use us to proclaim the truth to them. And also, Lord, help us again to continually be conformed to the likeness of your Son that we might bring glory to you in this way. We ask for your blessing on everyone here, and especially, Father, we do pray that, that you would open the eyes, open the ears of those who are not reconciled to you through faith in Christ, that they might see Jesus as he truly is, as your Son, the Eternal One through whom the world was created, who is the second person of the triune God, and who commands obedience as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. We pray for their salvation. And we also pray, Lord, that we would rejoice in the goodness and grace that we received from you. Amen.